You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And Xander Wilson. Hey, guys. Both the ZWs. Awesome. That uh, got that out without ruining this. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Tim will be chatting with Sunrise Weatherman Sam Mack about his new book, Accidental Weatherman. It's not my life story. It's not an autobiography. It's five years of my life as a traveling weatherman who doesn't really know much about the weather and the adventures and the people that I encounter. The magic of live television. They're half watching. So if we can do something that can tra- take them from half watching to full watching to get their full attention, then that's a win. And interacting with viewers on social media. You know, I took it on the chin and I kind of embraced it and I said, all right, let's engage with her and let's see where this goes. But first, the week's topics. Apple deploys iOS 14.5 with app tracking transparency measures. WPP moves Mediacom CEO Willy Pang sideways. And Edison Research's latest study into the Australian audio sector. Well, Damo, happy 14.5 day. Uh, did you did you see the brass band in the in the street celebrating as we were on the way into work this morning? I I didn't. I must admit, but I saw you try to download fourteen point five on your phone this morning. How did you go with that? Well, it did eventually download. Although, and I guess this is the main topic we're talking about. The reason for excitement, because obviously iPhones do update quite a lot and take an annoyingly long time, was because it will ask you whether you want to be tracked. It hasn't asked me yet. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. Has it asked you yet? Are, are you not getting the box that's meant to be popping up no. saying, "Would you like to be tracked or no, and not?" I've had a play and I've uploaded a few websites, and you know, you sort of, you know, try, tried to make it ask me. So far, not. But presumably, it will in time. But let's get to the let's let, let's get um, to the point. Yeah, absolutely. Apple generally does two big updates a year for iOS, which is the the autumn one or or our spring, and that's usually the the big one, which takes you from thirteen to fourteen, etc. And then the halves, which is the point five now. Halves are usually just a, a few bigger updates that generally don't make a huge difference. But for our industry, this is big because this is where the app tracking transparency measures come into play, particularly uh, IDFA, which is ID for advertisers. And essentially, it's turning the relationship between consumers and their apps on their head a bit. So you could still actually switch off tracking in iOS previously, but you had to go into the settings and then privacy, and then there was a little uh, tab that you, you switch. Not many people bothered doing that now it's front and center you open your app up it asks you are you going to allow this app to track you or not uh and the estimates are at the moment that they're pretty varied but people think between sort of 15 to 40 percent uh, studies have sort of shown that people will switch that off and not be tracked so that means uh advertisers can't follow users around from app to app and figure out what they're doing, how long they're spending, whether they're making purchases and and things like that. It makes tracking the user a whole heap harder than what it was before. So a couple of questions there. Obvious one, I suppose, is so for marketers, what should they do instead or how should they think about this? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting one. What surprised me really was this update was meant to come out with 14, not 14.5. And Facebook campaigned against it because they claimed it would be bad for small business. And, and of course, Apple not necessarily the good guys. It always, I guess, is satisfying for them to put one over on Facebook who, who are one of the people who've been campaigning against it, claiming it's bad for business. Absolutely. Look, Google has its own version of IDFA, so it's not really going to get into this debate. It's going to leave well enough alone in a sense. Obviously, it's got its own um, challenges and PR challenges as well. But Apple, let's remember, Apple, generally, they make their money from selling devices, from selling apps. Uh, So for them, they can stick a big privacy flag up and go, where for the consumer? Facebook, it's a completely different business model. They need as much data as they can get. They operate off ad revenue. Uh, and their ad revenue is significant. So for them, this change is quite big and it could adversely affect their business. I suppose the one thing, though, is although, yes, the the ads that consumers might see might be, be nice about them, might be less relevant, there aren't going to be any fewer ads. So does it actually change the number of dollars that are in the ecosystem? Well, this is it. No one quite knows just yet because no one really knows if people are going to follow through and, and switch the tracking off. Facebook, while they've campaigned, Mark Zuckerberg has said previously this could be good for Facebook in that maybe there will be more adverts going out because it'll be harder to get the uh, right ad in front of the right person at the right time. So you might spend more money to make sure that that happens. But it's all very much up in the air at the moment. I wonder as well if there's just generally anyway a bit of an evolution in how advertisers think about Facebook. Something I've noticed is if ever you search for a specific product or buy a specific product... Have you noticed increasingly now you not only see ads for that product, but all of the rivals as well, where Facebook now knows that you're in the market for, I don't know, buying a pair of trousers or something. So you don't just see it from the manufacturer who won your click last time, but all the others as well, which just seems very pro-Facebook and very anti-advertiser. Yeah, you do, don't you? And you also see a lot of the stuff that you've already just bought. You buy it and still two or three days later, you're seeing the, the ads pop up. So, you know, you could very easily argue that it it missed the mark a bit, you know, as it was anyway. But what it also does change for marketers as well is that we've been talking about personalization a, a lot and that was part of that personalization play. So this changes the game in terms of how we keep that personalization, uh, I, I guess, strategy moving forward uh henry innes from mutiny wrote an op-ed for us uh, yesterday which you definitely should read go to mumbrella.com.au and read that but i'll just point out the three things that he said that marketers need to start to think about uh, in terms of what to do now and they were you know first he said marketers are going to have to find new methods of measurement full stop that's just how it's going to be uh second uh targeting is going to get harder uh, and he suspects that most marketers are going to have to abandon the the personalization holy grail that they've chased for so, so long. Look, I don't know if they'll abandon it completely, but they do certainly have to rethink it. Uh, and, and thirdly, he said, you know, first party data and opt-in data will be much more critical now. And there's going to be more onus on brands to get their own houses in order to collect data through customer data platforms and other technologies to enable uh, their own targeting themselves. So really putting that emphasis on the brands themselves to get their houses in order. Next, more musical chairs at WPP. 
On Wednesday, it was announced that Mediacom CEO Willie Pang would move into the new role as Managing Director of Group M Services. Mediacom Russia and Mediacom Connections Israel CEO Yaron Farizon, and I'm going to apologize uh, if I pronounce that incorrectly, was announced as his replacement Zoe. More shakeups at WPP and Group M following the departure of Mark Lowback last month. Did we see this one coming? I think yes and no. Yes, because after Mark Lowback left, we started talking obviously a lot about who would possibly take that CEO role. And obviously, eyes initially fall to talent within the business and who could possibly step up and take a greater role across Group M. But no, because this isn't exactly what we thought it was going to look like. So Willie Pang's new role is to really drive this global digital transformation strategy being handed down from Group M globally. And he was selected for that role because his background is more in that sort of digital area compared to some of the other leaders in Group M who are more in that media planning and buying kind of space. So his role is kind of twofold. So the first sort of aspect of it, um, as I understand it, is to uh, leverage and scale more effectively within the agencies and help them find ways to distinguish each other, distinguish themselves from one another so that these agencies will find these little pockets of speciality that they can bring to clients as part of like a strategic design process and then Group M as a whole can be this engine room for the execution and more of that traditional media in and out in buying ins and outs kind of aspect. So really what Group M is trying to do now is sort of operate a little bit more like a software company as opposed to like a traditional buying company as you know clients are looking for different types of capabilities within what would once be known as like a very traditional media buying business they're now you know after things like data and tech marketing science strategy content so because of that they're trying to push their agencies into these sorts of areas and then it can all be leveraged across the group so then the second aspect of that role is really just sort of developing that new operating model. So you mentioned data, etc. choreograph, obviously launched yesterday. But I've got to admit, when I saw this one come through, the first thing I thought was, hmm, uh, managing director of Group M services, is that not just another name for Group M CEO? It sounds like it's not, though. No, so there's the hunt for a new CEO is still definitely on. And, you know, everything that all of the whispers that we've heard that they're really looking for someone with that local knowledge. I know, Tim, you've brought that up when we were talking about WPP last week. That I feel like that seems to be the case. They are looking for someone with that local knowledge of the market. That CEO role will be bringing in, hopefully, a new energy to the group. So spending more time in the market, telling that sort of strategic narrative of the group and then obviously taking on the leadership of the group as a whole. So Willie's new role will report into the CEO and obviously the CEO will also be involved in that digital transformation strategy. But um, definitely the CEO is still coming. Could that CEO have a German accent? I heard that. Uh, I didn't hear that rumour. I read that rumour going around the traps. I really on MI3. Yeah, on, on MLI3. Uh, it was 
somewhat non-conclusive in how it then addressed those rumours. But uh, Tim, I have a feeling you might have an opinion about this. Look, the danger is you record it and then you immediately look like a complete banana if it comes true. But I, I do find it hard to believe that, A, Jens Monsies is, is trying to elbow himself into that job, which was what MI3 was suggesting, um, based on the fact that he's in the office a lot at the moment. <laughs> the office vacated by Mark Lowellback. So I, I've, I, I find that hard to believe. And certainly, if you think about what they're looking for, which appears to be somebody who understands, has grown up in the media buying and trading dynamic and has the local relationships you know that that's not the sort of person we're describing there so there i think there are a number of reasons why that one doesn't make a a great deal of sense on the face of it next up podcasting audiences on the up in australia Edison Research released its latest Infinite Dial study this week, looking into the audio habits of Australians and highlighting key trends, particularly ones that emerged during pandemic lockdowns last year. Edison has run the Infinite Dial since 1998 uh, in the US and began conducting it in Australia in 2017. It uses a representative sample of 1,001 Australians and is commissioned by a CRA, a SCA listener, and Triton Digital. Xander, you are the man for audio. You've covered this study over the past many years. Um, key takeouts from it, anything that surprised you? How did you read it? Yeah, so the podcasting industry will be celebrating massively off the back of this study. The top line really was that the growth in podcast listening among Australians. At this time last year, 25% of, of podcasts of, of respondents said they were listening to podcasts each month. Um, and that, that number's gone up to, th- that percentage has gone up to 37% as of this study, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, obviously, on an advertising perspective, the issues that have been leveraged at the podcasting industry is that it's not at scale yet in Australia, which makes it really difficult to invest in. The other interesting fact is when you look back at the most recent studies in the Infinite Dial over the last few years, podcast awareness, which is a metric that they do as well, which is, I don't know, a bit here or there, uh, has always tracked ahead of America and Australia. Uh, it continues to do so, um, but podcast listening is always tracked behind. Now, as of this year, that 37% is almost exactly the same amount of uh, listeners in Australia as America had last year. So, we're, so it's, we're seeing Australia really catch up to the states in terms of percentage of listeners, but that scale issue still remains an issue. 37% of Americans is a lot more than 30% of Australians, and that's just a fact. Well, that's it though, isn't it? It's, we're talking percentages here. Is the scale that we're seeing in Australia... Do you know, Xander, anywhere near what we need it to be for podcasts to be uh, more of a business than what they are now? Well, it's getting there. And that's 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 the line that's being traipsed out by the podcasting companies, by the likes of Southern Cross Stereo with their listener app. It's a massive investment. It's hoping and, you know, they're obviously looking into the future and believing that it will be scalable um, in, in, the, in the next few years. Grant Blackley over the last sorry, SCA CEO Grant Blackley over the last three or four years has constantly talked about investment in digital audio, uh, even when the, 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 the results are just not there for it yet in Australia. I wonder whether one of the difficulties, though, is in terms of scaling, it's not just about listening scaling, 
it's the ability to create relevant ads and you you know when ideally you tailor each message to an individual me- to an individual audience and arguably an individual podcast is anyone getting close to working out a way around that yet I mean, for the time being, for the podcasting companies, they're spruiking the really good numbers they're getting out of uh, the smaller si- smaller to medium-scale advertisers getting really good results and cut through with their audiences. So I, th- I believe I've spoken about this earlier in the year, but I, I went to an event held by Acast. They did a study with um, Initiative uh, where they looked at all these metrics through a few different studies. And what they found was that in terms of cut through and trusting a voice, um, people that listen to podcasts regularly, specifically the same podcast, will trust live reads way more than on radio or, or really, really many other mediums. So, um, and that's something that everyone knows is there. It's just about how do you use that information and that cut through and that trust, which is which is quite rare in in this day and age in, in the ad industry, and 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 scale it. And that's a question that will continue to be asked, I think, for the next few years. Which is a message for advertisers: if you want to hear Damo's endorsement of your message right here get in touch it's cheaper than you think definitely gonna hey look maybe a lot of them will if they've been spooked by id for advertisers on ios my big question out of all this though is when we talk about scale as, as tim and, and, and Xander you just mentioned as well we're also talking about scale in terms of the investment in podcasting so if you're a business that has podcasts as well as radio grant buckley sca for example you know, what you want to do, of course, is you want to make sure that you're increasing that pot of money, just not in not just moving part of that pot of money that was, say, spent on radio into podcasting and still making the same amount of money, but across a lot more content now, right? You need to find new people to get involved rather than just rely on shifting spend and having to do more for the same amount of money. But that's probably a good kind of segue into the radio side of things because, uh infinite dial isn't just podcasting statistics what did we learn about radio xander from from this bit of research yeah so um initially listening to the the presentation on the infinite dial earlier this week they they sort of led with with all these numbers around podcasting and and you know you could almost hear the collective groan from all the people working in radio around australia waiting for their numbers to come up as as being falling and that that's simply not the case um 86 percent of respondents still listen to radio every single month that hasn't changed in the last three years so the fact is that this this extra listenership is not coming away from radio it's not being taken away from other other segments in in the audio in the audio sector and from that what we what we do know is that radio is still the go-to medium in audio if you want to get your reach but the cut through is just not there because you're reaching such a wide range of demographics then if you want to get that sort of more niche tailored advertising cut through that's where your podcasts come in i guess this is perhaps a pandora's box style can of worms if one can mix the metaphors radio reach relies on the starting assumption from the diary system of the radio survey of assuming what the universe is in the first place. Isn't this the big hole in radio listening all along, that the radio industry gets to decide how many people overall are listening and then split it into percentages? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I guess it doesn't make it any diff- more different than television, although obviously having a box connected your, to your TV is slightly more accurate than trying to recall what radio show you've listened to over the last week or month. But the fact is that the numbers that are coming through from more addressable mediums like podcasting, like connected TV, um, are more attractive to advertisers. It's just a matter of time before they overtake it, I imagine. Coming up next, I'm going to deliver one of those reads that Tim says the media and marketing industry should invest in, but also Tim's going to chat with Sam Mack of Sunrise about his new book. The countdown has begun. It's final days to claim your $300 ticket savings for Mumbrella 360 Reimagined. The program is already packed with some of Australia's most senior industry leaders set to reveal game-changing insights across two conference days this July. Secure your tickets by midnight next Friday, May 7, for a substantial discount. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more information. So one of the rarest clubs in Australian media is that of returning guests to the Mumbrella cast. Very few agree to come back. So nine years ago, our guest on the Mumbrella cast was Sam Mack. Now, at the time, Sam had just given up breakfast radio in Perth to chase a career in television in Sydney. I seem to remember that we chatted about how glad he was to get away from those early morning alarm calls. So, um, Sam, welcome back. And leaving out no detail, no matter how small, what have you been up to since 2012? <laughs> How long have you got, Tim? <laughs> this this feels already this feels like a counselling session, which I'm absolutely fine with. I feel like I'm one of those people that can't afford to see the counsellor every week, so it's a once a decade appointment that I have with you. So I appreciate that. A lot has happened in that time. Um, I am getting up earlier than I used to, so that's not a, that's not a good sign. Uh, I'm doing breakfast TV, um, and I'm travelling all over the country. And I've written a book, much like yourself. Yeah, so let's. That's a good place to start. So the reason we are chatting um, now is that your your I don't know whether the word is memoir. It always sounds slightly pretentious, but let's call it memoir. Accidental weatherman, which is published this week. So, what made you want to write it? Well, my job with Sunrise as a breakfast TV weatherman has changed my life in many ways. I'm not sure only in good ways. (laughs) It's changed my life in so many ways, but there's been so many positives that have come from this role that I just did not expect. I never set out to become a weatherman. Uh, I have no meteorological training. I stumbled into this role, but the beauty of the role, and anyone who watches a bit of Breakfast TV will know that the weather role is generally going to all parts of Australia and beyond, places that you probably haven't heard of, meeting people doing interesting things. Every day is a unique adventure in this role. So, of course, on those travels, you have people saying, where's the best place you've been? Where would you recommend I go? Where's the worst place you've been? Those types of questions, what time do you get up? How many flights do you do a year? People are fascinated by this role because they just see you pop up in a different location on the screen every day. And, they and you know, one day I'm bungee jumping, the next day I'm feeding a crocodile. Like it's, <laughs> it's a wild ride and so many people have said there's a book in this. You've got plenty of stories to tell. Um, and I, it's, it's not really, a, I guess, a memoir, maybe a memoir for five years of my life because it's not my life story. It's not an autobiography. It's five years of my life as a traveling weatherman who doesn't really know much about the weather 
and the adventures and the people that I encounter. Now, one of the things about the book is you, you, you found some, I suppose we could call it light and shade. Um, you, 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 you talk about your sort of personal connections and reasons for feeling so passionate about mental health um and one of the things i've i've I've, you know i've 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 really admired is the fact that you've found ways of doing it in radio and doing it in television of being this you know the sunny fun guy but then talking about quite serious stuff as well um why is that so important to you it's important to me because you know i lost a friend to suicide more than a decade ago now, Richard Marsland, and I'm sure some people listening will be familiar with him. He was an amazing writer, performer, talent, radio host. He wrote jokes for Sean McAuliffe, Rob McManus. Um, and he was almost a bit of a mentor to me when I started in radio because he was in more of a senior position. He was doing this work that I didn't even realize was a job. I was seeing him go in and write these comedy sketches and do these character voices. And I just... I just admired him from the outset and then got to know him as a friend and he was just the sweetest natured guy who who honestly would not hurt anyone and was so um just so generous with his time and and just an amazing person. So when we lost him that was my first real experience with suicide, you know, and I didn't and this was around 2009 2008 2009 so I I didn't know mental health conversations weren't as prominent back then there wasn't really are you okay day and and i and i i guess i just was not equipped to know how to talk about or to deal with this loss and this shock so it just became something that was i guess just a bit of a mission for me to do my small part to just keep chipping away at creating a space and using my platform on the media, whether it's radio or social media or TV, to encourage people to have these conversations and to encourage, encourage people to look out for signs just to, I know I'm not going to change the world, but if I can help a few people realise that they can speak up about the challenges they're going through and that there are other ways to, to deal with this, then that's a great contribution and it's something that, it's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. And, you know, the chapter in the book, is about that, but then it sort of spins off into other things like talking about catching up with Richard's parents now, many years after the fact, because I've always kept in contact with them, Alison and Peter. It talks about a, another friend of mine who attempted suicide, a, a lady in, in Queensland who thankfully was an unsuccessful attempt, and I asked her about what she was going through around that time and, and could she think about what she'd be leaving behind if she was, you know, successful with her suicide attempt. You know, they're heavy questions, but I wanted to help people to destigmatize and and feel okay about talking about these things and feel that there is someone to chat to and you don't have to handle and bottle this stuff up and deal with it all by yourself. So th- these are the things that you'll you'll read in the chapter and I've also done the audiobook and I recorded the audiobook and and that chapter was by far the the hardest to read because it's still it's still real and I still feel it and you know, I've talked about it on radio a couple of times. I've talked about it on TV a couple of times. That's, but that's only maybe four or five times over the course of 10 years. It's different posting about it on social media because you can take your time. You can really craft something. But when I read the Richard chapter, I, I really struggled. And you'll hear that in the audio book. I, I spoke to the team after and they said, look, you can do that again or we can tidy things up. We can shorten this. And 
in the end, I just said I want it to be as it is because it is hard to talk about and it and it, it is emotional and it does hurt, but it's more important that people get authenticity, I think. Well, look, I think one of the things that struck me when we, you know, when we first spoke was at that point, you had taken quite a big gamble. You know, you, you, you were already on your way with a radio career. And although I think you had a, a, a kind of contract with the, the, the project to do the Metro with, um, th- it, it, th- there wasn't an awful lot of a reason for you to move away from WA, come to Sydney and go for it. What, what was it that made you so driven to get into television? I've always loved television. When I was at school, I used to ask my um, teachers if I could create a video as opposed to doing a 1,500-word assignment. Um, And it wasn't out of laziness. It was more a case of this looks like more fun. And they, thankfully, the the teachers at my school, for the most part, said, yeah, you can do it via video, but you have to still reach these parts of the criteria and it has to go for this length and you have to answer these questions. So... From a very, very young age at school, you know, I'd borrow the video camera, I'd make videos of my friends and the soccer tournaments that we were having and I would just, I was obsessed with making things. Um, so then in when I eventually got a job in radio in Adelaide where I started in, in uh, commercial radio SAFM, I had access to studios, I had access to all these other talented people, I had access to guests coming through and I thought, well, I should make a community TV show or, you know, let's just try this. So I... I started my own community TV show called Sam Max Single Bed, which was literally hosted on my single bed in my tiny one-bedroom apartment in North Adelaide. I had a studio audience in my kitchen. I had a house band in my living room. Uh, they were called the Dairy Brothers, who went on to become the Beards, who had a number of you know hit songs. Uh, they made the Hottest 100 on Triple J, very talented Adelaide band, the Beards, and friends of mine. And from there, that kind of put me in contact with people at Channel 10, um, you know, Stephen Tate, Paul Leiden, these types of guys who said, look, there's something there. We're happy to kind of give you feedback and, and work with you on this. There's something there, which was a, a great vote of confidence for a young, you know, 19, 20-year-old in Adelaide just trying to make something. So even while I was doing radio, I often thought about the visual side of it. And when I started in radio, there wasn't as much of the multimedia. There wasn't as much of the online presence. It wasn't like that, which makes me sound like I'm 112 years old. But when I started, it wasn't quite to that degree. So it's always been bubbling away. I've always been a very visual person. I've always made things, video clips, parody songs with video clips. It's always been part of me. So I reached that point where I'd made quite a bit of money. I I was financially in a solid position. I had the luxury of being able to go, look, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to try this. I'm going to follow my true passion. If it doesn't work out, give it at least a year. If it doesn't work out, I can at least eat in that year and then I'll do something else. Thankfully, the project put me on a contract uh, and the work started to come through and I loved it even more than I thought I would and I knew that that was where I belonged. I still love radio and I still will do radio again, but just the added element of being able to have visual gags and I don't know, there was something about that that really excited me and, and now it's become my career and it's been you know five years in this role and I guess seven or so years as basically full-time TV. Well, you did the project, and then I suppose your sort of the the role that was the the, the bridge into doing Sunrise was uh, Wake Up, and I, um, which, which which was ten for for people who don't remember was Ten's fairly short lived uh, breakfast uh, program, which was it was done out of Manly in Sydney, and I I still remember quite early in the show, and Studio Ten launched about the same time. Yeah. Um, 
everybody in the Mumbrano office watching the TV the morning that you took a boat with Ita Buttrose from uh, Manly into uh, the idea of sort of sailing from the one show to the other. Um, and it, I'm not sure now, now that we look back and obviously the, the show sank fairly quickly. Um, it, it, it was something of a sailing metaphor really, wasn't it? Because um, it, that, that broadcast did not go entirely well. Well, I hope that I was Leonardo DiCaprio in that metaphor. <laughs> um, no, it didn't. But, you know, I, I refer to Wake Up as a pop-up breakfast show. You know, it, it was there. It made a little bit of noise. It was around for a little while. I don't have any regrets about doing that. My role on that show, I wasn't even a weather person on that role. I was kind of a roaming reporter. So they would use me some days and not use me the next. So I wasn't one of the main cast, as you can see me distancing myself from it. But it had some great people working on it. It had some really big thinkers, um, some good talent. It just didn't work as a cohesive unit and it didn't have time to really find its place. Um, but in terms of my experiences on it, I enjoyed working with the people I, you know, that I encountered on the show. I had some really fun moments and was kind of doing similar to stuff to what I'm doing now. I just didn't really have as much structure to it. Um, so I don't regret it at all. And it gave me a little taste of breakfast TV. So I guess... It meant that when I took the Sunrise gig, I had a little bit of a inkling in, as to what was going to work and what wasn't going to work in Breakfast TV. And so in many respects, it was good for me to have that little taste without being one of the main focus, you know, in terms of the main presenters on the show. Yeah, look, that, and I think that's a really good point because, you know, when you talk about structure, obviously, you know, one of the natures of doing a show like Sunrise or any sort of breakfast television is, you know, there there is a formula to it and you you have a kind of a a small niche within that formula. Um and I guess that's your opportunity to be creative. How do you actually go about carving something out of that? How do you approach it? Well, I I guess it's different for every person. For me, again, with the whip around which we referenced before, I had I had a couple of years of doing the Metro Whip Around for people that aren't familiar. Basically, it's they cross to each city in Australia, what's going on for the weekend, and you've got 45 seconds to showcase, a, you know, the Schutzenfest Sausage Festival or some sort of, you know, animal adventure park or whatever it is. So it became really competitive because I knew the other guys who were doing it. It was Ryan Fitzy, Fitzgerald. It was Jules Schiller, Tim Blackwell, Rosso, um, you know, really good, creative, fun people, and it almost became a little bit uh, competitive in a, in a fun, good-natured way to kind of try and outshine each other, which was really good practice for when I eventually got the Sunrise role because I initially I kind of looked at it as if I was doing seven whip-arounds a morning as opposed to one a week. So it's a big increase in the workload, but the principles are the same and the principles are, and this is how I filter it, don't just go for the basic predictable approach. Sometimes, of course, when you're doing seven crosses a day, 30 or 40 crosses a week, there's going to be an element of that. But try your best as a very basic filter to go, what's a slightly different way of coming at this? And if you can look at things through that filter, I think you're going to make more interesting TV. The other thing that, and I've got an amazing producer, which is a huge part of, I think, why our segments have stood out, uh, Sean Flynn, the human emoji, who also features on air. Um, he is very similar to me. He likes... He likes to take risks and he likes memorable TV. So how do we apply that? That means that when we're going to do an activity or a stunt, whether it's, you know, hoverboarding or I'm going to have a, Australia's Strongest Woman is going to lift me up in the air, we're big 
believers in not rehearsing that before the live bit. Whereas I'd say 90% of the producers and people that I've worked with would, and I get why they would, for blocking to check, you know, does it work? Can we do it? They would, they would run that through. We have found we get much better results by not running things through. And, and by better results, I mean things often go wrong, which is far more interesting TV. But it's all about how you behave in that space when it is going wrong. Some people will panic and will kind of, you know, will not, um, it won't add to the segment. Others, and what I, I like to think that we do, is embrace when things are going wrong and, and at least be, be comfortable in that space because I put a lot of what I do with TV and, and Sean's the same, my producer, I figure that particularly for breakfast TV, people are half watching. You know, they're ironing their shirts, they're getting their kids ready for school, they're having their wheat bix they're half watching. So if we can do something that can tra- take them from half watching to full watching to get their full attention, then that's a win. And how do you do that? By doing things that look weird or look a little bit NQR, not quite right. So if I've got a weightlifter, Australia's Strongest Woman, who's flying me around in the air and accidentally grabbing my, grabbing my crotch, suddenly people, you have their full attention. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting someone grabs my crotch in every segment. We do that once a week. Um, it's Grab a Crotch Fridays, which is a new segment that I've created. And do you do you find that you're more conscious that you're being watched with the extra filter of what the press might say about me? You know, and I I, I think I, I, I recall a couple of moments in the book, for instance, where you almost have to explain that what you obviously said just before was a joke, but you you actually have to use the words that was a joke, and it almost feels like you're writing that for the Daily Mail. <laughs> I try not to do that. I mean, sometimes I can't help but do that um, because, yes, it can. things can be taken very literally and obviously I know what the Daily Mail are doing and, and I don't have a problem with what they're doing for the most part. Obviously, with, with situations like a funeral and, you know, some areas I definitely think I, I would have a problem with and it's too far. Um, but for the most part, they're in the entertainment business as well, so they're trying to entertain in a different way. Um, so often I, I kind of, again, embrace it. And if they pass something off that I've said as a joke, as a literal story, I'll often then repost that and, and have fun with it again and give it another little, I guess, life. Um, because I think, I like to think that most of the people who follow me kind of understand my sense of humor and I like to give them credit, give the audience credit that they know that you're joking for the most part. So ideally you don't have to say that was a joke and I try not to do that very often. Um, and then often the joke is that the Daily Mail have printed it as a literal thing. That's kind of the, the, the icing on the cake with the joke, if, if you like. So, And it doesn't bother me. Like there's, there's been a few articles over the years that have bothered me, if, and, but that's me more in sort of the personal life space, you know, about relationships and, and things like that. But I, I understand, I accept that I can't control that. And if you want to have the good stuff, the fun, silly stuff, then you're going to have some that you don't that you don't love. And, you know, I'm not Kim Kardashian. I don't have people hiding out the front of my house. You know, I've got a similar shaped ass. But um, I, I am actually, for the most part, fine with it. And I embrace it like the failure, you know, when a segment goes wrong. I embrace it. And I think that, look, here's one thing that I've been thinking about lately. I feel that... It's great that we're becoming more aware of certain issues and we are, you know, um, without getting too heavy, but 
topics like Black Lives Matter and, and, and what we've been going through over the last couple of months with improving the treatment of women in workplaces and I guess just in society in general, which is excellent. And I'm so pleased that these things are happening. But I do worry about um, the other side of that, and the, and this is not related to those issues at all, but where people are so cautious about having a laugh and making a joke because there might be some way that it could be construed um, to reflect badly on you or to offend a certain group. I think that it's it's scary that, and I feel that out and about, and people are so scared, they're on edge, and I get why they are, to say the wrong thing. That That worries me because part of what I love about Australia is that we have a great sense of humor and we have this I guess the more you t- the more you take the piss out of someone the more you like them generally and I'd, I'd really hate to see Australia lose that because people are so scared of saying the wrong thing yeah that makes uh, that makes sense and I think one of the points you make in the book is that you know many of the kind of the the most fun interactions you've had with uh, people who've you know jumped into your social media to give you the feedback is when there's been you know they've they've, they've poked some fun at you as well, but you've taken it in the in in the way that it's, it, it's been intended. Absolutely, I think that's one of the great joys of of my job. You know, one of the chapters in the book is actually called Carol, and it's about a lady uh, from the Central Coast, um, a retiree with a bob cut who loves a Chardonnay who wrote to me one day completely out of the blue on social media telling me that I should not wear the colour dirty green because it doesn't suit me and it's not a television colour. And then she went on to write a list of colours that I should be wearing that are more suited to my complexion. (laughs) And then she signed off the the direct message by saying, keep smiling, you're growing on me, (laughs) which was so passive aggressive and it just made me laugh. And I felt that she was kind of having a dig at me but also was also having a little bit of fun and that became this enormous thing where I decided to share her posts. Of course, I wore dirty green the next day on the show. I held up a sign live on air that said, good morning, Carol. I started all of my weather crosses, all seven of them by saying, oh, good morning to Carol on the Central Coast and I embraced it and I created the hashtag, put your dirty greens out for Carol and then, you know, kids were showing me their dirty green school uniforms. We had lawyers were dressing up in dirty green scarves going into the to, to work and we had footy clubs sending me there and it became this movement and, and it culminated in us visiting carol at her retirement village to do a whole morning of the show live from her retirement village where i went through her wardrobe um you know i sat on the couch that she, she trolls people from and i ended up singing a song to her and i wore a full lycra dirty green bodysuit and it was honestly one of my favorite mornings of the show in five years because we took something that could have been negative and some people in media, I guess some people in general, are very precious and may have been offended by that. I took it, you know, I took it on the chin and I kind of embraced it and I said, all right, let's engage with her and let's see where this goes. And I could tell by her turn of phrase that she was a funny person. She was a character and she wasn't a nasty person. She was just like everyone's met a Carol. You know, I guess the other version is a Karen, but I think a Karen is nastier than a Carol. There is a difference. But it's the auntie who overshares or, or tells you what you're doing wrong in your relationship or tells you, you know, how to dress. That that happens. That's part of life. So the fact that we found this organically and the fact that we turned it into this enormous feature and it's now a chapter in my book is part of what I love about this job because I could never have predicted that. But if you're open to it and you just you know, you embrace these things that come flying at you and see where they can go, 
then you're going to find interesting content. And I've, I've, that's one of my favorite pieces of content. And, and she's a wonderful person. I've you know, become friends with her since that. <laughs> the book is called Accidental Weatherman. It's out now. Sam, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you, mate. Good luck for your book. Your book. I'm really excited to read it myself. And that's it for this week. But before we go, on May 27, the entire PR and communications industry is set to reunite for the first time in 791 days. I'm going to give a hat tip to Jordan from our marketing team for doing that count. Uh, They're going to reunite in 791 days at Mumbrella ComsCon in Sydney. The program is jam-packed with some of the best-known leaders from the industry, including brands like The Body Shop, Blooms the Chemist, Red Havas, Volkswagen... We Communications, Adobe, LinkedIn, and many more. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash comscon to grab your tickets and for the full program. That's it for this week, though. Thank you very much for joining me, Xander and Tim. Thank Bye-bye. you. Uh, before we go goodbye, though, Zoe, I'm singling you out because this is your last Mumbrella cast. Yes, it is. And for people who have been listening for the last two years, it's actually been me making the Mumbrella cast every week. So this is quite surreal being on my very last Mumbrella cast. There is a tear rolling down from my eye. No, there isn't. Well, unless <laughs> unless you come back as a guest once you're the boss of the agency that you're going to. Look, it's a possibility. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. It's going to be uh, a... Uh, a very different time without you and a very uh, sad time today as we commiserate on not having you in our podcast anymore. But obviously your input was amazing and we, we definitely thank you for that. So uh, good luck in your next role. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 